I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Madeline Drace and I am the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is on America's mass incarceration problem and our hosts today are Professor Evan Lane and Jacqueline Jordan, Executive Assistant to the Senior Associate Provost for Enrollment Management at Thomas Jefferson University. The roundtables will now be heard on the first and third Sundays on WGGTLP 92.9 Germantown Community Radio. Good afternoon and thank you so much for, for coming and allowing me to participate in this roundtable discussion. Again, my name is Jacqueline Jordan. I am the Executive Assistant to the Senior Associate Provost for Enrollment Management here at Thomas Jefferson University. Hi, my name is Evan Lane. I'm the Program Director for Law and Society of Jefferson. I'm also the Director of the All Inspector Center. Hi, I'm Leslie. I'm a first-year Law and Society student. Hi, I'm Ruben Jones. I'm the Philadelphia Campaign Coordinator for Justin Leadership School's Pre Campaign. I'm William Rush. I'm a student here at Thomas Jefferson University. I'm Jeffrey Jones. I'm the campaign organizer for Close Creek Just Leadership USA Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Beatrice Parjan, and I'm a first year Law Society major. Hi, I'm Mohammed Faisman Hassan. I'm an assistant professor of political Global Studies at Jefferson University. Hi, I'm Asana I'm a first year pre-med student. Thank you all so much for uh, those introductions. So first I just want to um, start by acknowledging our guests. We're all guests, but we do have two special guests here today, Ruben Jones, Philadelphia Campaign, Philadelphia Campaign Coordinator for uh, Just Leadership USA and Jeffrey Jones, Philadelphia Campaign Organizer. So before we get into the discussion, I would first like to allow them the opportunity to let us know uh, what Justice Leadership is and their role with the organization. Sure, Justice Leadership is a national organization which works to end mass incarceration. It primarily functions by allowing those who are most impacted by mass incarceration lead in the charge of making sure that there's policy change and implementation so that they can be socially and civically engaged in bringing about the reduction in incarceration rate across the nation, building and bringing resources to those who have been impacted, and making sure that there's change substantially throughout our communities. Yeah, the goal is to reduce the prison population by half, about 50%. By the year 2030, Just Leadership also focuses on amplifying the voice of directly impacted leadership. Uh, we believe that those goals are the problem goes to the solution, but often further away from resources and access to power. So the goal is to empower and amplify those voices so they can speak loudest about the change that we need uh, in the criminal justice system. So when we talk about mass incarceration, we're not just talking about numbers and information um, and resources, right? We're talking about living, breathing human beings. So I would like for all of us to keep that in mind as we have a discussion that um, we're talking about people, real people, just like us who are sitting here in this room today. So let's start with um, the first question. Like, what is mass incarceration? So that's like a buzzword. Everybody talks about it. But do we really know what mass incarceration is? Well, just on a numbers basis, the United States has 25% of the prison population in the world, and I believe our population represents 5% of the world. So we have an incredible amount of people in jail as opposed to the rest of the uh, rest of the earth. So that's mass incarceration. Uh, the other issue is just not numbers, but is 
who are the people that are being mass incarcerated, and is there any agenda behind that? So I think that it goes beyond just the strict numbers. And, and to tie into that too, I would like to you know, add to it's mass incarceration, but it's also targeted incarceration. Uh, because as was mentioned, it's not just the numbers, it's the demographics of the people who are actually being incarcerated on a higher level than any others across our nation. And that's primarily referring to black and brown people. So it's not just those who are being incarcerated at a higher rate, it's we have to look at economically, culturally, ethnically, and racially who are being targeted for this incarceration level increase. That spike has dramatically increased where it's one in every eight black males are being incarcerated. Uh, and that's a you know number in and of itself, which is staggering. I know we do want to add something to that as well. Yeah, I just want to center the dialogue. When we talk about mass incarceration, I like numbers, I like statistics, I like pretty words, but also like transparency and truth and, and honesty. And mass incarceration is rooted in structural racism. And if we can't have a conversation about structural racism, how it impacts people in this in this country who are marginalized, um, then we can't even begin to model, to begin to demolish mass incarceration. When Jeff mentioned those populations and all, all those institutions, there's a reason that, you know, black and brown people, poor people are targeted. There's a reason why um, black people or Africans were targeted for enslavement. And the reason is the same. And if we gloss away, because I think we missed the whole point uh, of Michelle Alexander's book that I'm sure everyone's read. Um, and in that, I say that um, a lot of institutions that perpetuate racial stereotypes and biases are also in control of uh, the, the prison industrial complex. So if we look at, you know, government, education, if we look at, you know, housing, all these other institutions, you know, black people, brown people, poor people are often last in line for opportunities <coughs> for employment, for adequate, affordable housing, for opportunity for education. And those are the same systems that push people uh, into, into prison cells. So we can talk about the school and prison pipeline, we can talk about all these depleted resources connected to gentrification, but at the heart of it, we're talking about structural racism. Can I just ask a, a question to the experts here? Because I, there are several different things all working alone and together, and I want to know your point of view on it. We have a private prison system in this country, which is pushing for the increase of people incarcerated, which is a, I look at it as not a black or white, but a green problem. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, you have the Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow situation, which I think is summed up beautifully by John Ehrlichman when he talked about what Richard Nixon said, mm -hmm. was essentially let's incarcerate black people so we can destroy their political power. That's putting it as about as simply as I can put it. And after that, the prison populations really rocking after that. So I want to know if you're looking at it from a pure profit situation of black people just being the target of money-making enterprises, or is there, is this a strictly racial um, argument, or is it a combination of, of both? Well, it's both. It's both. It's just like uh, two sides of the same coin. You know, so you can't uh, eliminate one and say it doesn't apply to the other because systematically it's always going to be making money for the oppressor. So therefore, there's a need for the prison. So when they build prisons, they don't build them just because they're you know some luxury building. Right? They build them because they're gonna 
put somebody in them. So financially, they're looking, okay, if they're going to build these, then we have these systematic laws in our uh, uh, criminal justice system, which lends itself to putting black and brown people in jeopardy or in danger of being in prison. So therefore, it's both, it's targeting the demographic of who you think are going to fill these buildings. It's just like the school to prison pipeline. We don't have that in the school right up the road here. And I don't want to mention your name because we're on the air. We don't have that challenge at the school right up the road here, right? Those kids aren't targeted for the school to prison pipeline. But you go to any one of the other public schools, and I'm not going to mention their names as well, but we know the level of the challenges in our public school system. We see those students being targeted. So it's racial in the sense that now financially I know where I can make my money from. I can get my money from here, from these students, and then therefore they're building more prisons. And the privatization of prisons is not really as much of a challenge. It's the public prisons that is, because it's not that many private prisons across the nation. People may think privatization of prisons is a rampant thing, but it's really in scale not as high as opposed to the public government-funded prisons. So those are the ones that we're looking at, because when we build those, they build those with the mindset of who's going to fill them. So it's the same it's, it's the same side of one coin. We can't eliminate one without saying it impacts the other. Yeah, I, I think it's easy to say one when we talk about mass incarceration, because that's the evil that we know, right? We can see it, we can point to it, we can really clearly define what that looks like, but there's some other more nefarious aspects to um, mass incarceration. So, you know, when you think about the urban population, right? So in Philadelphia, uh, when we have about a million and a half people, and I know the black population is probably about 40% or so, maybe 42. But if you look at State Road, the county jails in Philadelphia, what, what would you think the population of the county jails would be in Philadelphia? 40% black population, you know, top five cities. So it's 90%, nine out of 10 wow. people who are housed in Philadelphia County jails are black and brown. 90%, nine out of 10. That's a remarkable stat to me, considering over the last few years, the city has reduced the jail population by about 45%, considering that we have the quote unquote first progressive DA in the country, considering that we have a sympathetic city council who's supported things like in the cash bail. So, you know, consider we have a mayor who's, you know, you know, moving the city into the 21st century with, you know, partnerships and business and, and, and all these things. But when we look at all the progress that we talked about Philadelphia has made over the last few years in terms of criminal justice, why does that racial disparity exist? Right? Because it starts with who's getting arrested. And people are getting arrested based on a perception. So stop and frisk, a general police practice, you know, has 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 some accountability in that, right? The way we enforce laws, and we're not even talking about crack versus powder anymore. We're talking about everything from loitering to uh, possession of marijuana to criminalizing children's behavior in school. So that's one side of it. But the real power structure lies in how we are politically manipulated. So we can talk about redlining, right? But if you dig a little deeper and you look at the, the, the populations across the state who are incarcerated and you realize that probably about 70% of them come from Philadelphia and are shipped out to these rural areas across the state that used to be coal mines, right? The little farmland, they, they no longer have that, that economy. Human flesh replaces that economy, right? 
and, I'm, and, and, and not just the focus on money, but what happens is those prisoners are counted on that local county census, which creates federal dollars channeling into that community, which also creates additional representation in the, uh, in the legislature. So you are basically, the American Revolution is on the premise of no taxation without representation. But if you flip the script, that's exactly what's happened to America's black and brown marginalized populations. That they're used simply to tally votes in these rural communities to bring financial resources and again political power. That's why we have a Republican um, majority House and Senate in PA right now. Because the red line is directly linked to mass incarceration. I just want to mention one thing before we go on, because there's an insidious thing that we don't know about, especially... I mean, I said red line. I meant to say gerrymandering. Gerrymandering. That's red line. It's kind of insane. We start talking about the financial stuff, but gerrymandering. We will edit, replace gerrymandering. But you mentioned bail. I just want to get it out there. Bail is an insidious tool against the lower classes, because all you have to do is be arrested, and that doesn't mean you're guilty. But if you don't have the money to pay bail or to pay the absurd charges for the uh, bail bondsman, then although we're supposed to be presumed innocent, you can sit in jail up to a year. Um, and what that does, let's just think what that does to the individual. Um, if he has a business, the business is done. If he has a house, he can't pay his mortgage. If he has a rental, he's going to be booted out. Mm -hmm. How about his family? How about his kids? I mean, we can't forget about when we talk about this. It's just not the person that's in jail. Mm -hmm. It's everybody that they affect that, that branches down the tree, you know, up the tree. So bail, even we have people in jail who have not been convicted. Right. And the huge majority of those people who have not been convicted are of color as well. So we have to, I don't even know if that number goes into the 25 million. Because when you say in jail, it could just be convicted. I don't know if that number even includes the people sitting in county jails because they can't pay bail. So I want to just put that out there. Yeah, go ahead, Leslie. Um, so recently I saw a documentary, and you guys can talk more about this because I'm not very aware of it, but I saw that in St. Louis. So there's so many counties and that uh, many African Americans have to go through all these counties to get to work or to get to different places and each county has its own police system and so in each county they can get stopped and they'll have a um they'll have a ticket or something and they have to pay every single one and i hear i heard that that's what really adds up and that's where a lot of these uh smaller police systems are getting their getting a majority of their money yeah i, I mean I've, I've heard of um small counties including Philadelphia, which is not that small, making a lot of money off of fines and fees, right? So whether you it's a speeding trap, whether it's, you know, probation supervision, whatever it may be, they make an extraordinary amount of money based on marginalized populations. So you're correct. I don't know a lot about St. Louis, so I, don't, I, won't, I, won't, I can't necessarily address that. But I do want to go back to something about Bell, if you don't mind. The extraordinary thing about bail is we never consider the collateral consequences of, of bail. Because again, you know, all the information I quote is directly from the U.S. Constitution. So there's a presumption of innocence when you're in there and you're entitled to due process, right? 
So when you get arrested for anything, so you were accused of, can I use for So you were accused of shoplifting something out of 7 Eleven, right? Maybe it costs a dollar fifty. And you go in front of Magic and they say, okay, she's a student, she's a good kid, never been in trouble before. Bail is set at 500 bucks, 500 dollars. But if you don't have 500 dollars, it might as well be 5 million, right? So when you talk about the insidious nature of bail, this is one of the things that we really have to kind of wrap our brains around. For you as a student, I'm on your background, maybe you have access to $500 and you'll be bailed out the same day. You go about your business being class the next day. But for folks who don't have, you know what happens? They sit in jail for a year, a year and a half, two years, until the DA decides to offer them a plea. So you, they, you get worn down, it's a war of attrition. You get worn down by this time, you just want to go home. Even if you didn't do it. Even if you didn't do it. Just to get the hell out. Let me give you another, since we're in college, we love numbers, another amazing statistic about Philadelphia criminal justice. How many, what what do you think the percentage of the cases that go to trial? They have their day in court, not you, I know you. (laughs) You know your day in court, you get your day in court in front of a judge or a jury. Only about 10%, 90% of the cases are plea bargaining. So sitting in jail because you can't post bail is is is, is like a battering ram hitting you over the head until you submit and say, okay, I'll sign your paper. Please let me go. And that happens nine out of ten in nine out of ten cases. And, and now you're you felon on the record. And you felon. can't vote. Yeah. Even if you pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. The fact is, you still have a record that would never forget about. I hate the word expungement. It doesn't mean anything. It's something that was made up. That record can always be pulled up. Let somebody go out and shoot the president. And I guarantee you, they had a uh, that shoplifting case when they were 19, 20 years ago. Yeah. And they plea bargaining to a misdemeanor, unsupervised probation. I guarantee you, it'll be on CNN tonight. Oh, he's always been a bad guy. He's still from Senator. So those are some of the realities that we got to dispel some of these rumors and, and, and misinformation and really start dealing with fact. And like she said, dealing with the, the reality, talk about human beings and their lives who are being impacted. Yeah, and the disenfranchisement of uh, those individuals uh, is really something, as we mentioned, we've mentioned the collateral consequences. We have to look at what happens to a person uh, in those situations. You know, their lives are dramatically changed. I mean, they'll plead, but then they'll have this conviction on their record or they'll have this stain, if you will, on their record. So now they're not in a position to really ever do what their life ambitions really were because now they're hindered, they're handy, handicapped in that regard. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a problem and, and a challenge when we have that economic incarceration, which is, again, targeted towards black and brown individuals who they know are not in positions. I mean, we look at some of the most prominent cases that are in our society where you know, celebrities and those who are more well-off can get the bail to have their freedom. Why can't anyone else? Because it's targeted in such a way that they need to make sure that these individuals stay in a place where they can be controlled and contained. And a lot of times it's in black and brown communities. So you're absolutely right. Um, in in St. Louis, that is an issue, and in some of the smaller counties, specifically in Ferguson, um, this is something we talked about during the Ferguson summer after uh, Michael Brown was murdered. Mm-hmm. That a lot of people in that area face, you know, constantly being fined for jaywalking, 
for, you know, loitering, for all these things, and those fines add up. So before you know it, you know, it's been 30 days, you now owe $2,000 in fines, and there's fines, and then now there's a warrant out for your arrest. So the whole process of that, and this happens all over the country, not just in, in St. Louis or in Missouri, um, it happens all over the country. This is how um, many places get their revenue, because most of these small counties are broke. And so they figure, why not, we can't, um, if we can't get the money, you know, anywhere else, let's get the money from the black and brown people in those communities. Can I just say something real quick? Yeah. This something happened to me. I was driving, I was coming from down south, and I probably shouldn't share this story, because I don't get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I was speeding, I got pulled over. You allegedly speeding. No, I was speeding. No, you allegedly Allegedly They pulled me over in this a town in Virginia. When I learned about Virginia, you can't even pay a fine. You got to come back to court. Yep. Now I live in Philadelphia, and you physically, they're going to send you a court date in the mail. Well, actually, I think it was on the ticket. You have to physically go back to this town to face a judge for a speeding ticket. Now imagine if you were from Seattle, Washington, you were visiting family or whatever. So you got to spend eight hundred dollars for a plane ticket to come back for a fifty dollar speeding ticket. It makes no sense. So you know what the alternative is? You hire a lawyer, this local, right? Which is what I did. So you would pay him about three hundred dollars to go to court and represent you. Then it was like another like hundred and fifty dollars to take this driver safety course. It was all online. And then you still have to pay the fine just so you don't get points on your license and you don't have to disrupt your day to go back to Virginia. Imagine the thousands, probably millions of people that don't know that and got caught in the trap of speeding through Virginia. How much money are they generating on a simple, what could be a $50 fine that people end up spending anywhere from $500 to $1,000? It's incredible. So when you multiply that, times racism, we multiply that time this ingrained hatred for people who don't look like you. We multiply times, because the other thing we talk about mass carceration, they provide jobs, right? And people with jobs gotta eat and buy nice suits and buy cars, right? So you start to see how this behavior sustained an economy for whole communities. So if you don't mind, I want to ask um, another question. Do you guys mind talking about the risk assessment tool? <laughs> okay, because I think that's something that um, a lot of people may not be aware of, and I think it would be helpful if we just had a conversation yeah. around the risk assessment tool, what it is, what it does, and how it hurts individuals here in Pennsylvania. Wow. <laughs> I know it's a lot. That's like a loaded, loaded question. If you can just give us the baselines, just yeah. some basic facts and information about it. Well, no names, though, because yeah. we know you got names on the book, so. Right. Uh, the basic fact is not Basic facts. Basic facts is just That's not the good. Facts, That's the basic facts. Uh, the risk assessment tool for those who are listening and those in this room who may not be totally aware of it, I'll give a brief overview and then I'll let Ruben and our colleague Bobby who just joined us, they, they may chime in. It's a tool that was developed to assess the level of uh, potential risk that someone would present um, based on various different criteria, ranging from 
their neighborhood, ranging from um, marital status, ranging from economic to educational level, all these criteria. And it's, it's like the movie Minority Report. I don't know if you've seen the movie yeah. Minority Report or heard of, but it's, that movie, under the premise of the movie, is that they're going to look at what you could potentially do wrong, so they're going to arrest you now. That's the movie. The risk assessment tool kind of has some criteria built into it like that. They're going to potentially say, this is what you may do, based on all these other criteria factors. Now, the challenge with that is that... If I can just interrupt you a second. Mm -hmm. When does this apply? Is someone arrested, not arrested, convicted, or where is this risk assessment tool placed? So, actually, great question. There's a couple layers. So, right now, the probation department already uses one, right? The city is trying to introduce um, a pretrial risk assessment tool. And the state is introducing through the state sentencing commission a risk tool, a risk assessment tool to be used at sentencing, right? So what's incredible, and, and I'll let Jeff finish, but what, what's incredible about it when we talk about predictive algorithms, it's not about how well adjusted you are in prison or how much progress you made or how many things you've done. Great. They're really saying you're going to commit another crime. Should we let you go? How much time will she give you so that we don't, so the public, to keep the public safe, so to speak? That's at the crux of arguing about risk attack. It's predicting human behavior through a computer algorithm. So this, this would be after a conviction or a guilty plea that they do this? After the rest. So pre-trial is... So it's pre-trial. Yeah. It's three levels. Pre-trial at arrest. Yeah. If you get convicted and sentenced, they want to introduce you at the sentencing phase, and probation already used one. So if you're on probation, um, if you're on any type of supervision, then they'll use it there. So, yeah. 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 I'm Bobby Harris, a campaign uh, organizer for Close to Grief and Just Leadership. And it's a pleasure to be here. And you agree with everything. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's again just the, the surface of the risk assessment and it's, it's really challenging because again it doesn't give the true picture of an individual in terms of who they are or what they've even experienced and the things that are really uh, harmful about that algorithm again it factors in some criteria that are biased by nature uh, such as again your zip code and you know your family status and whether you're married uh, your educational level some of those things are, are so biased in nature it really you know counts against you so you could never really if you will score out of those criteria to be able to be seen as less than a risk in that space so you know it, it, it it's really problematic on every level it, it dehumanizes an individual without any understanding of the potential of what they can become uh, Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy, always talks about we have to look at someone for not what they have done and what they can potentially become. Risk assessment tools doesn't do that. Right. And because mostly it uses static information. So if you were, I was 15 at the age of my first arrest, that's never going to change. Right. So the, the, the example I used uh, when we testified in front of the, uh, for the hearings uh, on a risk assessment tool was that. Um, I gave him three names, he said don't mention names, right? But I gave him three names, and um, those three people were Martin Luther King, um, Luke Skywalker, and who's the third person? Jesus. Oh, Jesus, of course. <laughs> I remember Jesus. 
but you know, according to the risk assessment tool that's currently in development, um, all three of those people be deemed high risk. Well, the King got multiple arrests. Luke Skywalker was a person that came from basically a broken family. And Jesus, we know the story. You know, he came from Nazareth, right? Anything good ever come out of Nazareth, right? So we know that narrative. Um, but they can use this tool to paint a picture to determine a person's fate in the future. And, you know, that's why we focus on intelligence. I just wonder how much of this risk assessment uh, process is also inspired by the war on terror, September 11, that happened. A lot of strategies and tools were um, sort of organized in order to criminalize Muslim bodies and neighborhoods, particularly in the U.S. and also internationally, like what countries became that sort of assessed as mm -hmm. risky enough to be invaded, uh, including Afghanistan, Iraq, mm -hmm. and many others that have received that intervention. If we look at a global um, picture of that assessment, risk mm -hmm. assessment, and also here in the U.S. that many neighborhoods like in Queens, New York, and Chicago, the Bond Street, Many or Detroit, um, where a lot of Middle Eastern population reside, became those kind of neighborhoods that had that sort of considered potential risk of danger and then became more surveilled. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how these two are in many ways connected because uh, when we talk about incarceration or the criminal justice system, they both, the racialized bodies of blacks and browns, pretty much. Um, speaks to what had happened in post 9-11 to the Muslim bodies because they both uh, in many ways uh, took the same projects and applied it to a different group. So is it in, um, in your assessment that what they realize is that what they did to or what they are doing and have done to black people they are now doing to individuals that they quote unquote deem to be at risk for terror? Yeah. Just based off of religion. Yeah, because I, I feel like they, they have a very similar kind of projects that are just that the show didn't aren't just a new black. So it's a, it's very similar yeah. copy and paste of those projects that who is potential risk and who is going to um, impose that sort of or pose those kind of uh, risk or threat to the community. So it's just, I think, an addition to that that always existed, but then um, I believe September 11 actually gave it a little more weight uh, to expand those projects to other neighborhoods. And that's a continuation of those same projects. And it's, um, that, that makes sense, and I'm glad you, you made that point, because it seems like, um, like this is historical. Like this is not something that, no. you know, one day, just boom, we just decided this yeah. is what we're going to do. Like this is... Like the history of the United States has been sort of built on this, taking right. sort of mar marginalized, oppressed communities mm -hmm. and then saying, oh, well, you're this. So, so creating the stereotype, like the propagandas of the stereotype, mm -hmm. and then pushing it out through the media and through other sources and saying, oh, okay, well, you're this. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we can institute all of these things um, in order to make sure that we keep you safe for the, the like we keep the general population safe, meaning white, right? So we keep white folks safe from black and brown people. So that, that makes perfect, perfect sense. Not that I ever thought about it. Yeah, because it's very similar when you look at it, for example, or to the gendered and sex bodies, mm -hmm. uh, how 
queer and trans bodies yeah. have also been um, portrayed as this stress because the boogeyman that's always a threat yeah. to the community. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in these conversations, when we talk about incarceration, we oftentimes ignore um, or forget to talk about many trans uh, women of color, particularly black and brown, who are in these uh, prisons and oftentimes neglected both by the community and also by the system because they um, have been portrayed as this threat to, they don't have also family support in many cases. And one in uh, three trans women of color are being murdered. Um, and that's a, a, a oftentimes also in relation to uh, poverty uh, where they are. Um, and I just wonder if there are any of your organizations are addressing the gendered and sex bodies in uh, prison system. I have a good question. What is the AC? What's the ACLU saying about the um, the, the, the risk assessment tool? And when did the risk assessment tool come into practice? What's in the question? The state one is they have nine, so they passed it uh, about two weeks ago. They voted on September fifth, so nine two weeks. Thank you. So they have ninety days that the legislature can repeal it, which it doesn't look likely that's going to happen. But after 90 days, it's in effect. So we look, really have about, what's the day? The third? So we probably got about 60-something days for that, for the, for the state level, for the state sentencing, for the risk assessment at the sentence level. The pretrial one is already in effect. The city is, through the MacArthur implementation, is working to develop one for pre-trial. Now they've been working on it for about three years, so and we've been kind of pushing back and opposing it. So they stopped, they started, they stopped, they started. Um, but they they indicated they plan to go full steam ahead with uh, developing the, the pre-trial. But has so, the ACLU been an ally or partner? ACLU has actually filed a lawsuit, so they are opposed to the pre-trial. They, well, they're opposed to the assessment in general. So they've been, and you know, they've been involved with opposing the state level and at the city level. So, um, and that's a good thing. So, well, I just want to like really something you said. It was a profound analysis that I personally had thought about. Um, I thank you for bringing to our, to our attention. And and Jackie mentioned that America has a history. Let's let's be. Let's, let's be clear, you know, the 1800s, you know, was filled with Asians building railroads, right? You know, the, the 17 to 1800s was filled with, you know, Africans on cotton plantations, right? If you, you mentioned Orange is New Black, if you look at, there's always this kind of disparaging remarks about Mexicans or uh, people of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hispanic persuasion, you know, we want to build walls and, and do all this thing. But the scary part about what you said was since 9-1-1, America created, a, for the first time in history, a unified fear of a singular group of people, right? So anybody with, you know, in Muslim garb or with an accent or from, you know, the Middle East, automatically comes under suspicion. No matter what, whether you are a lawyer, a football player, a teacher, 
nerves automatically. And it's justified with those two buildings falling, right? So that means you can put all these things in play. You can still fear people. And we've seen it happen many times in Germany and other places where you instill this fear. So it doesn't matter what amount of money you spend to create public safety, right? So that argument becomes nullified by them. It doesn't matter how much you vote or push back because the public sentiment is always going to evolve around what? Now the catchword is national security. So I agree with you that it is something that we, everyone who's been othered, right? Everyone who's been pushed to the margins really need to think, start thinking there's more of us than there are of them, but we allow them to, to take control of this narrative that paints us into a point. So thank you for that. I just want to go back to something that Evan said at the very beginning, asking whether the the practice of private prisons. I know it's not a huge percentage, right. but there are two ways in which this works. One is the private prison. So this is examined in the context of capitalism and racism. So it's like neoliberal racism. Uh, something that I read recently was about not just how much money the prison system makes, but also the prisoners are actually very cheap labor. Stay freely. Yes, and they are put to so many of those works, and the pay is just, I mean, peanuts cost more, so I cannot say pay is like peanuts, because peanuts actually cost more. <laughs> um, it's not a good uh, comparison. So I just want to put that out there, that there is another incentive to keep packing these prisons with uh, people who are marginalized, so they, you know, it just keeps working and working, and no one is pushing back. The thing is, it's a power, it's been a power game from the beginning. And it's taking the people in power, keeping them in power. Because if you arrest, whether it's Muslims, whether it's people of the LGBTQ community, blacks, browns, whatever it is, people who are generally not in power, mm -hmm. how do we keep them out of power? Well, we put them in jail. We destroy their families. We destroy their ability to get a job later on. They can't vote. They can't even, uh, I have a student who has a record. He wants to go to the Air Force. He can't go. You know, you, what you do is you take away their opportunities for power. So you destroy communities. One thing, Nixon was being honest one of the first times in his life. He actually was stating what he wanted to do, and it did it very effectively. But we've been doing that constantly. It's a game that we've been playing from the beginning. You know, the people in power do not want to give it up. And no matter who challenges, how do we put them out? Put them in jail. That's how you do it, whether it's bail or whatever it may be. And then you have to live with those consequences for the rest of your life. It's literally, you know, a, 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 every charge is a life sentence, and every life sentence is a death sentence. So, wrap it up. Okay. All right, so, um, <laughs> yeah, as we, we start to wrap it up, um, I just want to ask the, the team what can we do in terms of advocacy? You know, I know, you know we can have these discussions, but a lot of times we walk away and say, okay, well, it's a huge problem. We'll, I don't know if I can do anything. I'm a student or, you know, I'm, I'm faculty and I feel like my hands are tied. What can people do, ordinary citizens, regular citizens do um, in terms of advocacy to uh, for policy change? It's a great question. You can join the COVID Creek campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and it just so happens that we're having a rally in Harrisburg on October 30th that we'd like to invite you guys to and participate in and raise your voices and risk assessment is one of the, the things that we will be uh, opposing, along with uh, advocating for bail reform, 
uh, probation reform, rural eligibility for lifers, um, ending the use of electronic monitoring, and you know, community reinvestment. You know, as we close prisons, uh, beginning to reinvest that money back into the communities that need it. So that's one thing you can do is, again, join our campaign and, and support the work. But the other thing you can do, and probably the easiest if you want the law hanging fruit, is just to call your, your state legislators, call your mayor, call your city council person, better go to the office and say, yo, I ain't down with this. <laughs> and if you are, I'm not supporting you from this election or any election. We're going to vote you out of office, period. And maybe you take a friend with you, maybe you take 50. Maybe y'all do it one at a time, maybe you do it collectively. But the one thing they respond to are numbers, because numbers represent registered voters, and registered voters equals a job or not a job. So that's one of the most simple things that you could do. Yeah, and just to, to tie into that, it can be looked at as a three-prone three approach, approach too, that you inform yourself, as Ruben was saying, about the issues and the challenges that are really predominant in the mass incarceration and criminal justice reform space. Keep yourself on the pulse of those issues so you can inform yourself, that's one. And then as you begin to inform yourself, then you begin to advocate, advocate for those issues that are most prevalent in your community and most, which most impacts your family uh, individually or collectively. And then begin to just organize. So you inform, you advocate, you organize. Those are the ways which you can really begin to make a difference. And of course, joining the Close the Creek Just Leadership Campaign would really be beneficial for us here in this particular area because we're doing work nationally. You can, you can always use your help. But locally here on your camp, campus or in your community, keep yourself informed about the things that are really happening on your campus. You mentioned a lot of great things about some of the issues that are challenging you in the space of mass incarceration because what I, what I always tell people that mass incarceration is a social justice issue. It's not just about those who are going through the criminal justice system. It's about how it impacts our community economically, educationally, and socially. So when you look at communities that have been most dramatically impacted by mass incarceration, you look at where there's lack of jobs, you look at where there's lack of education, you look at where there's lack of opportunities, you're going to see a footprint of mass incarceration. So it's a social justice issue. So we can't, it's like six degrees of separation. We can't say it doesn't impact us. But yet when you ride through a neighborhood, you have to go a certain space to find certain things because it's not there anymore. Why? Because the jobs are taken away. You can go through certain areas where the schools are bad and you wonder, these kids, no, it's not the kids. It's the look at the degradation and depravity of that community based on mass incarceration. So mass incarceration is a social justice issue where we have to keep ourselves informed about what's happening, advocate for that change, and organize to make sure we have the power to make a change or a difference in our community. So those are ways that you can always be able to uh, support in the space of mass incarceration. Um, this was an awesome discussion. So thank you all for your input. Uh, thank you to the crew at Just Leadership um, for participating and coming out. And thank you. So, Before you go, is yeah. there a way they could contact Just Leadership? Yes, yeah, website? Right, there yeah, you I go. Was to, <laughs> I was about to get that. Uh, if you want to follow Just Leadership, our website for our national brand is uh, JLUSA, the initials of Just Leadership, JLUSA.org. Uh, then you'll be able to see all the campaign work we're doing nationally. You can uh, search on that site, you'll find our Close the Creek campaign, and we'll have information about us there. But more locally, if you have your smartphones with you now, which I hope you do, uh, even though they may be on sound, I wish you bring them out, take them out now. I want you to follow us. Follow us right now on Instagram and Twitter. It's all simple. It's Close the Creek. Just like it sounds, close the creek 
on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's all the same. So we would uh, recommend you follow us. That way you can get the updates on what we're doing. We're going to have a, a rally day in Harrisburg on October 30th. We we're going to go up to Harrisburg and rally for Parole for Lifers. We just came back from Harrisburg a few days ago. We was up there with uh, uh, ACLU and FAM advocating for probation and bail reform. So again, you get all that great information of what we're doing by following us on social media, Close the Creek. That's our social media handles for all of the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then also our national website is jlusa.org. Uh, the telephone number to our office, we are located at 1800 JFK. So if you want to come down here and visit us, we're on the third floor. And I don't know the office number by heart, but I know the number where you can reach us is 267 442-4480, and that way you can reach us by phone. And email is uh, creek at JLUSA. And if you forgot any of that information, or you need me to email it, so you don't have me to email that information to you, um, just either stop by White Corners and see me, or send me a quick email, and I'll be glad to give you that information. And thanks again for having us. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.